0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, my guest is Sarah Sams, former editor of the Today programme, former editor of the Sunday Telegraph and Reader's Digest and former deputy editor of the Daily Telegraph. She's been a leading light of journalism ever since I've known her. And now she's written a new book called The Interior Silence, Ten Lessons from Monastic Life. Now, Sarah, you are probably one of the most buzzy, plugged in, Newsy, gossipy, you know, alive to the world people I've come across in my whole professional life. And you've now gone away and written a book about monasteries. Have you had a bump on the head? (laughs) Yes, I think that that's a sort of clear
1: implication of the book that I've had some kind of breakdown (laughs) or that something's something's happened. But because um, I suppose I have been um, close to news for a long time, the sudden desire. For everyone just to shut up. (laughs) Mostly myself. It is part of that. I was I was remembering the phrase um, from the great late Frank Johnson about the chattering classes, And I think when he wrote it, you know, he hadn't quite realised how much um, the volume was still to turn up. And so I suppose it was, I mean, it was written sort of partly during lockdown, but really the spur for it was coming across a very slim volume by Patrick Lee Firmer called A Time to Keep Silence. And he um, was an adventurer and a travel writer and tremendously social, but he did see that there was this beautiful contrast of uh, stone cloisters and silence and a bit of Gregorian chanting and what that does to somehow bring back um, a, a sense of sort of peace of mind, which I think we probably have all lost a little bit,
0: Sam, have we not? We have. <laughs> uh, did it sort of sneak up on you or did it? was it conceived as a book? I mean, you have this brilliant sort of personal intro where you have a wall at the bottom of your garden, which obviously... You know, as a reminder.
1: It was a reminder, yes. It's a a fragment of a Cistercian wall. But somehow, although it's a small thing, it does draw your eye. And actually people do come up because we know that the country is full of brilliant amateur historians and um, who, who come up and make notes and they've looked into a little bit of the history of it. And it was a, a little abbey of, um, of very poor nuns. They were about the first to go uh, when Thomas Cromwell took on the monasteries. And there was nothing of value there at all. Um, I had a little dig um, that wasn't... Um, I'm afraid not at all, Sutton Hoo, and they they found actually nothing. Fortunately, they didn't find bones because those are quite expensive, I think, to be, to be buried. But that suggested that they weren't even buried in a in the grander place. But there is something very compelling about that wall, and it's the it's the contrast. I think partly it's because you can get jackdaws doors in the that sit in the stone windows, and the light comes through in a rather beautiful way, and so it is it's it's very restful, and it is of course this symbol of enduring powerlessness so um that was a i guess the the direct contrast to um a um, london world of journalism which is all about to speed and judgment and power and this was the opposite so there was something very restful about that also because it was um lockdown and of course we were reading hillary mantel and i started to get a little indignant on behalf of my nuns you know that somehow this sense um from the Cromwell point of view, that that, um, monasteries were, you know, corrupt or on the wrong side. And uh, I thought that there were, someone should speak for them. So I started to do a little bit of um, studying and actually a little bit like those amateur historians turning up at the gate and So there's a little Cistercian sort of network and then that took me to thinking about the monasteries around the world. And of course a lot of them are in very, very beautiful and strange places, you know, there's mountainsides. Is it um, is a common place for for monasteries? It's mountain, or in case of places like Lindisfarne, it's it has to be an extremity. I was desperate to get to Armenia, and I and I couldn't because of, of lockdown. So that's the the bit that's
0: left. Yes, poor Lindisfarne was your third choice of remote <laughs> abbey, wasn't it? <laughs>
1: No, well I was following a route. I started in Ireland and then tried to get to Iona and then and then to Northumberland. So it was the Celtic route. And actually Lindisfarne was, was one of the most um moving because I then got to see the Lindisfarne Gospels, which I've never seen. And um, and of course they're shown in the British Library but on a very strict schedule of one page appears every other six months in a anyway there 's a whole constitution around the showing of the Lindisfarne Gospels. Everyone wants to get to the start of a chapter because that 's where the calligraphy is at its most fabulous. But I did get to see one page and it and it was an astonishing part of me and they are so neat <laughs> and so that that was very cheering so I think there was although i 've sort of skimmed. The surface of, of monasteries. It was it was really just this sense that they are a, a remedy in some way to the digital age.
0: You know, you sort of drop in like the history of hospitals, the history of medicine, the history of universities. You know, they all come out of monasteries.
1: They do, and and, and actually, that w- wove its way a bit into the story of the of the pandemic because, of course, you know, pestilence was also relevant during those times but actually it was when Boris Johnson went into St Thomas's and I thought oh St Thomas's and you look it up and there it was a priory before and so this sense although some of the surgery was a little crude and there's um, a brilliant website I follow on uh, medieval pictures and a lot of them are people just sort of soaring off your genitals and so on so they kind of had a go but uh, but the instinct was that you were there to care for people and actually care for them if they were uh, mentally sick um in a way that the invisible to everyone but the lord i think was 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 the way they put it so you know what we would call mental health and i think that uh, in a in a way that was the bit that that um those that have gone obviously quite enlightenment and wouldn't have a natural affinity with the monasteries but um but they said but that pastoral care and sense of absolute humility is affecting. So yes, but there was both the scholarship, so out of that came a lot of the universities, and certainly where I am in Norfolk, you know, from Ely to Cambridge, you keep seeing those colleges and thinking, oh, you know, that's the connection, and the hospitals themselves. Um, So again, that struck a chord during this time.
0: There's a lovely story you retail of these people who kept getting attacked by highwaymen, as they were near this particular abbey, and then they'd wake up under the tender ministrations of this lovely mother superior, or, or I've probably got her rank wrong, but the senior nun. And then they donate to the monastery. And then, which monastery was this?
1: Well, this is the tale of my little wall. So this is this could be early patriarchal propaganda, of course. It was said that, yes, Sister Barbara, who resided in this little Marham Abbey, was in league with a local highwayman, basically, so that, as you say, travellers would come... And um, they 'd be robbed they 'd see this this wonderful image of a nun caring for them, and she would bring them back to the abbey and which and then um the proceeds between her and the highwaymen would get shared out, and then there would be a, a another bonus because the travellers were so grateful to the nuns they would give them some extra money so that 's a wicked little local legend, and certainly people have said that they 've seen ghosts of uh, Sister Barbara. Um, wandering around my house. But I I don't believe it. I think there's no evidence in the history that I have seen
0: that it was anything but a poor nunnery. Fair enough. No wicked monks or nuns. Now, you say it's ten lessons. Did you... Because it's also ten visits. Did you find yourself having to sort of divide the lessons between the visits? (laughs) Because the the sort of sense in which you've got, like, this is where we learn about this, and this is where we learn about this. But aren't they on the whole, all part of the same package?
1: Yeah, the principles are common to all of them and, um, and the qualities of compassion and fortitude and humility and, and all those things um, obviously uh, are common to them. But what I tried to think was w- whether there was something sort of particular to a monastery that I could single out, and part of that's to do with the setting. So the monastery in Bhutan I connected to happiness because that's an actual governmental principle in Bhutan. And the way that they try and achieve happiness um, are things like fair social distribution and environmental care and that sort of thing. So they think they've kind of created happiness, but it's done on monastic principles. And then there were other places that I, I just picked up threads. So Montserrat in Catalonia. I call that Dark Knight of the Soul, because that comes from St. John of the Cross, a Spanish priest. Um, and that again is one of the so so some and it also has there this um figure of the Black Madonna who's a sort of fascinating symbol herself of you know, night and creation and and then the light that comes out of that and so on. So I thought that there were sort of particular qualities that you could pick out. Um and then so for instance in Salzburg, which is the nuns and Nazis chapter, which is, basically the sound of music and poor old Salzburg which is also the home of Mozart so it takes its music tremendously seriously um but to the rest of us it's the sound of music so so actually Nomburg Abbey you know they're very sort of they're very patient about people standing up and rattling the railings and asking to speak to Maria <laughs> but so I chose music for that and part of that was coming out of the um the teachings of a Dominican Dominica friar and priest uh, called Timothy Radcliffe, who you, I'm sure you know, and he wrote a book called A Christian Imagination. And his premise is that you can come to faith through different means. So for someone like me, who's, um, you know, a sort of tentative Anglican, apart from anything else, it's uh, that, that you can approach it through music or art. In the in the case of Francis of Assisi and Jotti frescoes, it's um, so there are different ways of a arri- or nature, uh, different ways of arriving at what we would call faith. And that is, you know, that's a big question. I noticed there was a comment online um, after a piece in the FT, which said, um, you know, very much enjoyed it. We don't seem to be talking about God in all this. And that is, you know, I'm I'm hesitant about sort of approaching it full on. Um, And obviously that is why the monks are there, you know. So um, I, while I'm talking about you know, dark skies or um happiness or um extremity or those different themes. You know, that the obvious central one is God, but I, I, I feel that's a bit above my
0: pay grade. I, I don't I don't know. But do you I mean do you think it is possible to sort of take the lessons from monasticism, but have that central meaning if you like, to one side or evacuated from it? I you know is it then going to just move into the territory of you know, what we can learn from the Bible about wellness or whatever. The
1: mindfulness thing is, this is it comes back to this a terrible dilemma that people go, so it's like mindfulness. I mean, no, no, monasticism is so unlike what we understand as mindfulness, you know, because that's all about really self-care and, um, you know, relaxation and, and pampering, whereas this is obviously something much more austere. And you have to be careful that that it doesn't sound too flippant. You know, I went to the Japanese temples um, for for temple monasticism. So that chapter is called Harmony. And that is something that is cultural as well as spiritual. But there are ways that the novice monks are taught to try and achieve that. And the first is tidiness and cleanliness. So really, you should have a really tidy desk, (coughs) Sam, and um,
0: a tidy room. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we might just have abolished colonists.
1: And so I said um, after that, you know, that I was going to at least try and enact that. I was at least going to start trying to clear out my handbag. And someone, you know, wittily and scornfully pointed this out in a review. saying, <laughs> So at the end of all these honest days, you're going to clear out your handbag, you know. So that thing about how you adapt lessons is... It's true. it's true. But I think there are, you know, there are small things that you can take away, cleanliness and tidiness. Um, that sense of just not rushing to judgment, I find a, um, that is something that you. I found actually even over this weekend of, you know, you see a great sort of convulsion of of, of a of what looks like the start of a social movement and then just but waiting before you rush to judgment on things i think is not a bad lesson for those of us in the news media that sometimes things shake out and you'll kind of know further down the line you know what really happened and i think that the, the sense too that um the the great thing if one was able to learn and i certainly haven't mastered it but i saw it amongst the egyptian monks because a lot of those then or over here, the Coptics and their doctors, you know, they're existing in society and then they sometimes go back to their monastic roots. And they are able somehow to keep a sense of of inner stillness while being in the the bustle. And, of course, that would be a wonderful thing to have. Um, But I think you can have a bit of that, at least having a little sense of perspective. And I'm worried that we do lose an ability even to... um, even to read sometimes I've talked to quite a few people during lockdown who said that they haven't been able to read some people are able to do audio and there's something about maybe it's the sort of constant alarm or listening to news that's constant alarming but it's robbed them of the ability to read and um that seemed to me a terrible thing you know so actually and I don't know if that's a um a gift of being amongst the monasteries but I find reading now uh, the greatest pleasure And I'm able to do it and concentrate and for long periods and I'm not looking at my phone. So I guess, you know, can that be the the takeaway?
0: (laughs) Was boredom something you were scared of? I mean, I know you were you were going for sort of weekends or a couple of days at a time. But, you know, knowing you a little and knowing um, what we do habitually, I would think sitting absolutely still and having no input at all would give you the willies.
1: Well, I did it because um, I was fitting it into, um, you know, a work schedule. So uh, you're right, I didn't stay anywhere um, very long. I think I, and I think that would be the barrier. So I can, I felt what I had is a sort of insight, but then I ran away, you know, the idea of sitting it out. But I did talk to a um, young woman in Bhutan who'd been at a monastery there, which was, um, it was, Pretty um, bare, and you know, outside toilets, and it was just a, a row of cubicles, really. And she was a you know senior executive in a Dutch airline, you know, so it was she was used to. She said, and she arrived, she said, oh well, I'm a germophobic for a start, you know. So she expected extremely high standards, you know, of comfort, convenience, hygiene, and put herself through this. And so actually, after a night there. You know, was tremendously sort of squeamish about the conditions, and then saw the sunrise come up, and something happens, you know, and clicks. But then I left. Um, she stayed there for many months, and I think she said, and she said, you know, that you there's a first week of um, sort of panic, and so it's a, I guess that becomes a kind of spiritual detoxification of some kind. Then you get beyond that, and then you start to appreciate smaller things you have a different sense of time you have a different sense a different rhythm and a much deeper understanding of your surroundings and so something then rather marvellous happened so I never you know I never got to that but I I spoke to people to whom that it happens and patience and perseverance of course are two very monastic qualities so I think that it would be possible to do and I would love to try that as we say you know when I've more time make me good but not yet. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> i mean you, you visited both buddhist and christian orders was there any a sort of noticeable difference between what was going on there or was the core of it the same and obviously different christian orders you visited as well
1: yeah i think you know at heart that that things so i think the difference would feel more cultural and of it, course it's interesting seeing the you know the european and british tradition of of monasticism which obviously the medieval times matter to that and then it's so much part of the history of what happened. So I'm not sure, I'm trying to I'm trying to work out if this sense of persecution is the same, you know, that and so I think you probably do react to the politics around you. You know, we got all caught up in the crusades and so on. So I don't know you would need at this point to talk to Melanie MacDonald or perhaps Christopher Howes about the um, ecclesiastical history side, but I would have thought in spiritual terms, that sense of, you know, peace and peace through compassion and a sort of celebration of powerlessness feels the same. I don't know. I don't know whether culturally, I mean, it it, isn't in Japan, for instance, you know, monks can marry there. So they're in society and part of society. I suppose we've had also we've had troubles here, to put it um, mildly with reputationally, you know, some of the things that have happened in some of the Catholic schools and so on. And, and in Ireland, I think there's a you know, book at the moment about sort of falling out of love with the with the with the church for various reasons. But I think that sense of spiritual retreat seems to me universal. And when um, I noticed uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury said he was going off on spiritual retreat and some of the papers said skiving. <laughs> You know, the top because they just thought that that's like a holiday, and it is very much not like a holiday. you know those are beautiful places for me, you know though I went really as a sort of travel writer and a reporter, but um it's a you know harsh existence you you really would have to believe very, very deeply, um, and you would have such internal resources and I think if you lost your faith imagine how bleak it would be but if you have faith and that sense of stillness and I saw that certainly in Cistercian Monastery in France so you know it's a beautiful place it's surrounded by lavender and it's a silent order and you're you've got your seven services a a day it seemed to me that out of that you know sheer sort of discipline and devotion there was a great Sense of beauty and divinity, and so for those monks there, they must that must be their existence. But it's a very, it's an extremely long training, I think, to to get there. Apart from anything else, you know. So they uh, everyone understands that there'll be people who won't make it.
0: <laughs> that that was the Bernard of Clairvaux order. Yes, is that right. And, and I felt like you responded to that one more strongly than any of the others. Is that is that right? I did.
1: Um, I think it was. And I so that's where you have to separate. You know, was it the setting? It was a particularly beautiful setting. They say it was lavender fields. It was um, it was th- this wonderful, you know, pale limestone and and slate, and it was laid out sort of very beautifully. And so you could just sit, um, you know, sit in the cloisters, looking at the path of the sun and listening to the Gregorian chanting and so on. And that so that's where I would. Be- I suppose that's when I became closest to thinking um this must be what faith feels like but then that might be also a sort of cultural um that it's an aesthetic reaction too, and it's whether you can separate all that um that it just felt beautiful but I it partly you know I love the stone and I and, and I love the choral singing my brother was a um, head chorister at Canterbury Cathedral so I kind of have a you know, a, a memory of choral singing. And like most people, you know, if I hear a top C at Christmas, you know, my heart melts. Whereas some of the um, Coptic services, where it's a different kind of chanting and it can go on for many hours, you know, there's a, the, there is that sort of feeling of, um, you know, a kind of a, appreciation for them, but there's not the direct aesthetic relationship. So I think that you have to probably think of that as well.
0: Now, you call yourself an Anglican. Has this process affected your own faith?
1: It's made me a bit more appreciative. And actually, I do now read the Bible because the stories are very wonderful anyway. I've um, been reading over and over again Song of Songs, which is just this wonderfully lyrical Probably came from some sort of Egyptian poetry, you know, beautiful, sensuous thing in the middle of the Bible. And so I think um, certainly an appreciation. And I do. I remember um, the great Simon Heffer, uh, one of your colleagues, used to say that he would take for his wife's summer holiday, he would take her on a tour of Norfolk churches and I thought this was, you know, brutal. <laughs> so, you know, was like, Can't you just give her a copy of Vogue and take her to Italy like everyone else? <laughs> and now um, sounds like heaven to me. So um, I don't know, again, if it's still the aesthetic, cultural appreciation. But I think it's probably there's something a bit deeper than that. And I do find also an, a, a, an ability to be able to detach myself quite easily now from the news agenda and when people are most worked up about whatever the subject of the day is you know i can sort of tiptoe away and look at my wall and i find that somehow that sort of speaks to me in a in a in a deeper way
0: you're recovering
1: now but um yeah it's restorative i think that's the thing
0: you tease simon about taking his wife on tours of norfolk churches but certainly according to the book you dragged your husband kim (laughs) <laughs> um, all around the world to these monasteries. How did he respond to that? I mean, in particular, when you managed to go into a monastery for three days with his mobile phone. And yes, was... That,
1: that was um, probably a low point in our relationship, <laughs> I would say. That, uh, um, I think he would take it as, I think, a, a lot of... Uh, it's it's a, maybe quite a British thing to take amateur interests in, in things. So that, um, so I think he was indulgent that it was a, it was a hobby he comes from sort of good quaker stock from um yorkshire and so uh is suspicious i think of any anything institutional <laughs> probably. but he was able to uh you know he he liked the the bits of so bits of monasticism nature walking all that kind of all, all that sort of stuff anyone can do and of course he strode up to tiger's nest in um bhutan while everyone else was just um Collapsing on the lichen branches,
0: lichen is it lichen? Yes, I mean, yeah. Interesting what you make of Bhutan because you, as you describe it, I couldn't quite tell whether this was a sort of UKIP-style theocracy, or this sort of perfectly enlightened.
1: No, it's a it's a very good question because I think perhaps it's both. You know that you, in order to achieve your sort of sovereign ideal it it does mean that you do sort of close borders you are in some ways unwelcoming that the that there isn't that just sort of natural economic growth so the you know that the food stays the same and so on that you know people are in a kind of national dress so you've certainly preserved the the culture but I think if you're used to something a bit more Sort of cosmopolitan that you know there's something a little bit autocratic about that as well in a in a very beautiful way. <laughs> so I, I um I, it's it's how you achieve it is interesting and also the sort of snootiness towards economic growth. So I think um there was a quote from uh, a Singapore minister who said that it would take um, ten years for um, Bhutan to catch up with Singapore and um, uh, and Bhutan had you know responded that. Um, it would take, you know, an awful lot longer than that for Singapore to come near Bhutan, you know. So it's the sense that um, of a sort of superiority of a very enclosed culture. But it is it is the biodiversity is astonishing.
0: You know, one aspect of biodiversity which you didn't like was this mosquito, which emerges as a sort of parable in the middle of this. Can you tell me about the mosquito? Because I thought there was... There was really something quite resonant in that. <laughs> well,
1: this was the sort of disappointment and it's um it's a tale of sort of vanity and self-delusion. So I had come to be among the desert fathers who, you know, this was the origins of of monasticism. So I felt, you know, that I'd really sort of achieved the great silence of of the desert and I was I was with the um those desert monks and I'd flung open my um window of the Room that I was in, and there was a sort of there there was an illuminated cross and this you know great Egyptian sky, and I felt then you know tremendously part of the experience. And then I tried to go to sleep, and a mosquito just kept buzzing around my head. And then there was this whole sort of assault force of mosquitoes, and so I was um, you know tying sheets around my head and trying to, and then shut the windows open anyway. So I didn't sleep all night. And in the morning, my face was just this terrible sort of pox-like mass of of bites. And so I guess it was the, so there was a terrible discrepancy between what I wanted to feel spiritually and amongst these people and looking like this pox-ridden kind of woman who was also vain and upset by it, you know. So which, of course, you, you should not care about those things at all. And I was um, about to go off to Alexandria to look at, you know, where St Mark had introduced monasticism. And, you know, all I could think of was that people would be laughing at me and my face looked so terrible. And I, you know, was putting on sort of Elizabeth I foundation to try and cover it up. So I think that was really, um, it was a sort of terrible, you know, Bridget Jones hits desert monasticism. <laughs> so I, I think the... The the lesson for me was that it's sometimes hard to live up to all this stuff, you know.
0: That, uh... It is all these funny juxtapositions as well. I mean, when you go and visit, um, oh, go, go, the the Assisi, you know, you say, well, the last time I was here, you know, I saw Boris Johnson getting his dongle eaten at Yevgeny Lebedev's, you know, palace. It's a computer term. Can I just say?
1: <laughs> well the point of that was that francis assisi of course himself was a wealthy merchant and then converted so and it was in the same place Perugia. so um i hadn't just sort of thrown that in but it was so it was the idea of 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 contrast that um this was the sort of lowliest saint of them all and you look at it this stone slab that he uh, slept on and i think gk chesterton said you know that you would you could look down on this um pain-wracked figure and see that he was the happiest man in the world you know and so somehow there's all that and then thinking so I suppose it's the contrast between throughout the book between a world of the where the things we value of you know power and money and um, speed and excitability and uh, and all those things you know our our world and then versus this something that's um, you know timeless and and peaceful, and utterly uninterested in power or money. Um, so that—that that is what I'm left with. Is—is is, it's the better place. I just can't get there.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I, it, it is the better place. But big as we're in this world, like can you tell me what happened about this? This Yevgeny's wolf ate bit a bit of. The now prime minister's computer. That's right. There is
1: something called a dongle, as you know, <laughs> which is uh, which is, is the part of the computer. So the prime minister, as he was then, I think he was then a mayor, but also columnist, of course. So he was trying to write his column, and there was this magnificent uh, wolf just striding around the house and gardens. And then uh, I saw, you know, the wolf, and behind him, uh, so the wolf. Uh, running quite fast and behind him, panting this figure of Boris Johnson saying, he's got my dongle! He's taken my dongle! So, that was the the, the comic sequence.
0: <laughs> so he actually did have an excuse for filing late. He did <laughs> once. He a had real one.
1: That's quite a thing for, that's quite an excuse to write down, isn't it? The, the wolf ate my dongle, yeah.
0: <laughs> it is the dog ate my homework. Um, now, I mean, it, it ends on a slightly, well I don't know, sombre note, but you have this resonant quote, and you say, "Life is best led as an antechamber to death." Do you think that's true? I mean, Dylan Thomas certainly would disagree with you.
1: Well, what I think is, it's a sense of time scale. You know, there, there was a, a quote earlier, actually, when a, a monk at um, uh, Revo Abbey I think it was in in Yorkshire had complained that he couldn't sleep and some of this is by the way the, the trivial thing that I was finding I was slightly insomniac to um, which was why Patrick Le went into the monasteries and anyway, the monk said he couldn't sleep, and the, the abbot advised him just to imagine he was in the grave. And it is a kind of—it's quite a response. But I think if you just have that rather more sort of philosophical sense of uh, the things that you mind very much about, probably in the in the great scheme of things, um, don't matter so much. And I think that sense also of our sort of place in in the universe, which actually is an idea shared by scientists perhaps as as much as those of faith you know that uh, that we're that we're a small part of a um, of, of something very great and I think perhaps in media where sometimes people feel it's the other way around you know that it's it's not a bad lesson so I think it was as it's a sort of relief to um know that you know that each time the news breaks you know in the great scheme of things you're back to the Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all shall be well.
0: Was it that, that, you know, fatally wider sense of perspective that made you have to stop doing today?
1: No, it wasn't directly linked, but it was part of it, of thinking that there is life outside, of thinking that this sort of vortex of, of news. And because I was in charge of a running order, it, it's ceaseless and uh and there was also there were a few months where for some reason my phone got attached to the taxi switchboard for for news at the BBC so it was actually beeping you know for all night <laughs> and uh so that does make you quite sort of jittery and that thing about looking at your phone looking at your phone I think there are other things happened as well I um, became a grandmother and so certainly a sense of things other, other things being more important um, and so actually what I find now um, is doing things that are st- so I'm still busy I'm doing quite a lot um, I didn't have a breakdown, but it's a, but it's in a way that I feel it's more sort of distributed and a bit more perspective and I'm doing things I really mind about that aren't Um, aren't paid and I'm doing things that um, are interesting that are paid so it's 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 a more rounded existence and so and I and the main thing is you know I'm very happy to listen to the today program and I read the papers and then that's it you know whereas before that thing that you're actually just watching your phone all day and a lot of the night just can't be right.
0: Do you think there's any chance you might want to go I'm going to do this for a year or do this for the rest of my life and just retreat quietly into a... I mean, you can't really do it for the rest of your life because you have grandchildren and a husband and dependents, but just go into orders. Uh,
1: You you have to be accepted, Sam. So I think I could in that I'm... So you mustn't be in debt and you mustn't have dependents and I think you have to be clear about the sex on your birth certificate too. So, So, you know, there are people that do it. But I think I just look at them, you know, across a divide. But with, you know, with admiration and fondness. There's a quote I really like that um, Sister Wendy Beckett uh, was asked if the... What earth the nuns thought of her um, amazing life, that she was on telly and she was travelling and she was so famous. And she said, oh... Yes, they feel sorry for me. And I and I just think that's what you should always remember, <laughs> you know, when you think your life's that it's most exciting,
0: there are people who feel sorry for you. Sam. <laughs> so, Sands, Thank you very much indeed.